Welcome to Talking Higher Ed. I'm John Neal, president of Gen Ed Consulting, and uh, this is episode number seven with my friend Roger Kiefer, who is a longtime vice president of admissions, enrollment management, and uh, formerly uh, coach, uh, athletic leader as well. Uh, today's topic is on enrollment management, especially admissions and recruitment challenges, and his experience in medium to smaller private institutions. We hope you enjoy this episode with thanks to Grant Neal, our producer and engineer. Roger, thanks so much for being with us. It's just, it's always a thrill to be with you and uh, spend time and um, hear your wisdom about uh, a variety of different areas. I was saying to you earlier, um, a number of our folks who listen to the podcast are uh, aspirational higher ed people. They're either trying to figure out how to migrate into higher ed or they're in their early stages and and they now realize that the career isn't a straight line trajectory, you know, that's full of lots of twists and turns. So I'd love to hear you talk about um, your migration into admissions, into strategic enrollment management. How did all of this start? Where where did all of this begin for you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, good to be with you too, John, and thanks for the invitation. Um, well, I was uh, I started my career as a coach. I was uh, uh, at uh, Laterno University in Texas, and after I finished my master's degree, I graduated from there, got my master's degree. Uh, they invited me back to coach the wrestling team, and uh, and then I also picked up the baseball team. So I was actually coaching two sports for about six or seven years. Wow! Uh, have great memories of that. Loved it. Um, but I did reach a point where I had to ask myself the question: Do I want to do this the rest of my life? And I wasn't sure, so I asked for a leave of absence uh, to work on a doctorate, mm-hmm. and uh, they granted that uh, full pay. Wow. Um, went to the University of Arkansas uh, on a two-year leave of absence, and after the first year, they called me and, and offered me a job and uh, <laughs> to come back. When I did the exit interview, they said, now we can't guarantee you that the coaching position will be open, but we, we, we want you to come back, and we mm-hmm. will have a position for you. Uh, and that was part of the agreement of the payback on the on the. Uh, on the doctorate and all that, and so I, I really didn't know what to expect. I was young and green at the time, but uh, uh, they called me after one year and said, we'd like you to consider coming back in, in a position of Associate Dean of Admissions and Records. And uh, and what I realized at, at some point, I did accept the position, and we decided to go back. I never finished the doctorate. I don't regret it. Mm-hmm. There were times when I tried but uh, to finish it up, but I, I don't really have any serious regrets about that because I got into enrollment management and stuck with it and that was my career and loved it. Uh, but what I realized was that they uh, that there were two consecutive years of 13% decline in enrollment and they were kind of in panic mode and they said, Here, here's a guy that was coaching, he knows a little bit about recruitment, let's get him on the team. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I knew nothing about enrollment management, but it was clear that they wanted me to head up the, the recruitment and the admissions. And so my title started in, in admissions and records. I learned about the records office, but really they wanted me to focus on admissions and recruitment. And so I made it my business to try to figure it out mm-hmm. and uh, had some really good resources to do that. 
uh, primarily NACAP, uh, the national, back then it was the National Association of Christian College Admissions Professionals, and I, I benefited greatly from that organization, among other resources. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I've always been a, kind of a sucker for a challenge, and so I rolled up my sleeves and tried to figure it out, and eventually they gave me the title of Director of Admissions, and eventually the Dean of Admissions, and the next step would have been VP. I, I already had financial aid come under under my uh, uh, leadership. Um, the, this was the the uh, early 80s, so the concept of enrollment management was kind of in its infancy at sure. that time. And so you that, kind of ran parallel to yeah, that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so so financial aid became a part of my uh, <clears throat> my world. And uh, and soon after that, my wife and I decided, you know, maybe we're not going to stay in Texas forever. And so I started kind of putting my toe in the water and ended up going to a different institution as a VP for enrollment. And then the rest is history. So that's how I got into it. Wow. Well, I love the connection um, with athletics and admissions. And, you know, that, that can be a bit of a love-hate relationship at a lot of institutions, especially um, smaller private institutions that struggle sometimes with being 70, 80, even 90 percent driven by athletics. So it would seem to me that your athletic background, your coaching background, really helped you to have a, a, a better relationship with the coaches than that were at the institution because they couldn't say, well, you don't understand what this is like and, you know, I'm under so much pressure and you've never had to do this job. Did did you feel like it helped you or not? Uh, no doubt. I mean, it, p- part of it was just kind of the leadership aspects of being a coach helped me. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of um, understand what it means to lead a group of people, but the, but like you're saying, um, there were um, recruitment was obviously a part of of, a, uh, of being a coach. And when one of the interesting things is that now, when I think about and when I'm describing student recruitment, even even in my career or now as a consultant, and I give examples of excellent examples of recruitment they're almost all coaches because in, uh, and I often say the best recruiters I ever knew were coaches sure and that's not a slam on admissions folks mm-hmm. um, but uh, uh, there is a different motivation and and um, and they're um, they have some advantages over admissions folks because they're selling themselves literally selling themselves in their own programs but they're really good at what they do, by and large. The mm. successful ones obviously are. And so when I'm when I'm trying to observe what really works out there from a student recruitment standpoint, I don't think there's any better examples than coaches. Yeah. So so that helped me because I was one of them. It also helped me in that uh, um, <clears throat> that I I think I had great relationships with the athletic departments at the institutions that I worked at in enrollment management because I had been one of them and they could relate to that. Uh, even now as a consultant, um, the world has changed, as you know, significantly in that athletics is now a tool for enrollment management in ways that it wasn't um, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. Now it's one of the primary building blocks of many small college enrollment, strategic enrollment plans 
Uh, and that, that's kind of new territory for a lot of these schools. So bringing a consultant in who has had experience both as a coach and as an enrollment person and has had experience in bringing admissions and athletics together in in constructive and strategic ways is a big advantage for me now too. So yeah, that background, I mean, a little, as you know, enrollment management co- folks come from all walks of life Very true. and a lot of different backgrounds, but, uh, but I, you know, I would say there are some advantages to having come through the, the ranks in athletics. I, I think it's a really interesting perspective. And, um, I would say even from from my background, being able to find people who did a great job as a coach or as an athletic director in putting teams together often brought that kind of drive that they they personalized the the experience. You know, they they created a really winsome kind of opportunity for prospective students. I don't know if you would agree with this or not, but there have been a lot of times with um, admissions representatives who were not recruiting for um, athletics for for me often I I would try to illustrate that um, we were looking for the kind of diversity or think about building a team or a bench because sometimes they would find out oh if I do this I can recruit this kind of student now I'm just going to push that button a hundred times it was like no no I mean yes we want students like that but we also want some other kinds of students and I would use the analogy of we can't have a hundred pitchers on the baseball team so think about the different kinds of student groups that we want to attract to build this full team on campus that worked with some people didn't work with others or I'd use the music analogy of we're trying to build an orchestra here. I don't need 20 oboes, right? right. And so uh, anyway, I, I do think it's difficult when there's not a sort of a, a, a broader notion of the bigger team, in quotes, that we're trying to build um, from an admissions perspective anyway. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Talk a little bit about um, the current work that you're doing transitioning from being a VP um, and, you know, doing a great job leading that over the years. How did the transition to consulting come about? What did that look like for you? When when did you know you were really ready to take the plunge? Because uh, like you, I have a lot of folks come to me and say, so what did that look like? How, how did you pull that off? Yeah, it's a little different than people will probably expect, but uh, I uh, I had an opportunity to do some peer consulting through the years, mostly through this NACAP organization that I mentioned earlier that they had some opportunities to do some peer consulting, whether it was just simply going in and doing an assessment of an admissions operation broadly or a very specific sticky issue that they were dealing with that somebody heard that I had also dealt with and and made some um, some adjustments where where I worked, and they thought I we'd like to hear how you did that. So sure. in both those cases, all of those cases, I I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought maybe this fits me pretty well. Another factor that was occurring was that I loved my time in enrollment management. There were many many rewards, as everybody who's been in enrollment management knows. There's also a lot of pressures, and. Uh, um, and so one of the things that I started to really enjoy was mentoring the younger folks that, that I ended up having 
um, the opportunity to work with that I had either hired or that I inherited when I moved to another institution. And some of those relationships are the, 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 the best relationships that I even have today are some of those people that I was able to take under my wing and be a mentor to them. And so that became sort of like the best part of my job. And so I got this notion at some point that, you know, between my experiences consulting and my joy of, of, of mentoring people, just kind of naturally giving people the advantage of the perspective of, of years of experience right. uh, for people that had less experience, those two things brought me a lot of reward. I thought maybe I could retire early and, and do some, some uh, leadership development type of work uh, executive coaching, whatever whatever you want to call it. And so I found there were some resources out there. I, I spent time and money investing in those in those resources to become certified in some areas of, of leadership development, all with the idea of of uh, starting my own consulting business and retiring early. Kept my president informed as to what I was doing. Didn't have a timeline yet, but mm-hmm. but started doing a little bit more consistently. Some consulting on the side while I was uh, those last years that I was a vice president had that built into my contract, and so it was very intentional on my part. Not with the idea that I would do enrollment management consulting, but with the idea that I would do leadership development stuff with all kinds of organizations, hoping that some of that would be with colleges and universities and possibly even enrollment management offices or departments on campus. So I actually did quite a bit of business the last three or four years that I was a vice president, always above board, letting the president know. And again, this was built into my into my agreement with the institution. And then at some point I said, this is going to be my last year Hmm. because I'm going to move into this more permanently. There were some ulterior motives. We wanted to move back here to Tennessee. (laughs) And that was one of the reasons why we we chose to to do the early retirement as well. But most of it was I thought I would try my hand at this, that there was another leg to my journey, so to speak, and Hmm. that it would be kind of giving back what I felt like I had gained in terms of perspective. When I even now, when I go in to consult somewhere, I say I don't know that I have a whole lot of wisdom to share, or uh, that I, I hope this is going to be helpful. But one thing you'll know is I have perspective. Mm-hmm. Thirty years in enrollment management gives you perspective. There won't be anything you can you can ask me or throw at me that I don't have a perspective on. I will have faced it at some point, or at least I'll be able to look at it from an angle of, well, let me tell you what I, so that's another way of saying I got an opinion about it, but, uh, but I call it perspective. Mm. And, and I said, if that kind of perspective is something that you would be interested in, 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 in getting, then, then I would be a good match for what you're looking for here. So it's sort of the way I do things even. So well, I, I love your positivity about it because usually what I tell people is I'll be happy to talk about the scar tissue. Yeah. You know, the, the school of hard knocks has helped me to understand a little bit about yeah, that. That's, that's true. I wanted to drill down then without stealing your thunder or the, the magic sauce. I, I know when you're consulting with organizations, particularly about admissions work, enrollment management, you see, and you're at a lot of different kinds of, of institutions that have um, many different modalities, on-ground, traditional, they're dealing with adults, online, graduate, all of that sort of thing. Um, are there some common themes that you're seeing from 
from an admissions enrollment standpoint? What are, what are some of the things that you're seeing today? Are, are those things that have been fairly consistent over the years, or are there some things that have developed more recently that, that you're running into? Yeah, none of this will be earth-shattering or a surprise, but I can share a few things. And, and sort of to finish that thought, it, while, I, while I, I didn't intend to go into enrollment management consulting, it was more in the leadership area. Once I retired and people started calling me, the vast majority of it was in enrollment management, which actually brings me to my, my first point is that, uh, is that I would say, I've often said to boards or to presidents pretty often that, that that small private higher education may be the most distressed industry in America right now. Yeah. And um, at least it's one of them. And, uh, and, and so that is a common theme, if yes. you want to put it that way. Right. And I think that's mostly since 2008, since that recession. And I think it had a profound effect for a lot of reasons. So I saw a lot of change in 30 years. I never saw as rapid or as profound a change as I did those last six years from 2008 forward. And, and the best way to capsulize that huge change that I saw during that period of time is that, uh, you know, 20 years ago, if you sit down with a family and say to talk about college, you know, it's basically... Um, the assumption that's coming from the family is, okay, Junior's about to graduate from high school, we're trying to figure out which college he's going to go to. Pretty simple concept. And while that does still exist, I think that's actually perhaps even become the minority, uh, but it's definitely a lot less common. It's much more common to say juniors graduating from high school, here's what he thinks he wants to do with his life, and we're trying to figure out exactly how he can get positioned in such a way that he can do that and do that well. Now, it might sound like the same conversation, but it's a different conversation. They have more options. They, have, they don't think of it being naturally, yes, you went to high school for four years, so now I'm going to enroll at a college and go to that college for four years as a tacit assumption. Hmm. That's not as common anymore. It's just not as common. So that's one way to describe it. Hmm. The other big change is the way they think about paying for college. And and um, and I saw it change rapidly after the 2008 recession. And I think a lot of it had to do with, you know, the media got a hold of the cost of private higher education and and made it into into news in ways that it hadn't been before. And and then you couple that with with what uh, um, what uh, policymakers as well as the media were, were really focusing in on what they called the educational loan crisis, and all of that kind of kind of resulted in this kind of um, is it worth it to pay for college? Is it worth it to borrow for college? Not how much should we borrow, but should we borrow, and how much should we pay, but should we even pay for college? I mean, the conversations changed significantly in terms of that whole affordability and how do you pay for college um, compared to prior to that. Like mm -hmm. 20 years ago compared to now, it's a different kind of a conversation. All of that I saw just, if nothing else, just by talking to families when they came on campus, the parents especially. Yeah. The, the, the conversations changed significantly. Wow. How do you see because your career has largely been in the private sector and medium to smaller institutions, 
you know, we read all the time in the press about, you know, some catastrophic number of them will be out of business over the next few years. When you're talking with presidents, what are a couple of pieces of advice you give them uh, to at least start that journey of how how do we, we're not even in the mode with many of them of how do we thrive, it is how do we survive, how do we get through these difficult days? What are, what are a couple of things that you tend to mention to them that w- at least gives them a starting point to separate from the crowd that's starting toward the 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 big sucky sound on the other side of the room, right? Interesting way to frame the question. <laughs> um, probably the 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 first place I start is to to disabuse them of the notion that there's some silver bullet out there that if we could just find that one big idea, and that's going to turn this thing around and. Um, and for some, it's easy. I mean, they go, yep, you're right. And uh, But for others, I mean, you, they might say that, but they're still kind of hoping or thinking that there's this one silver bullet and there's this one perfect idea for their institution that's going to that's gonna turn it around and revolutionize their school. And so that's pl- probably one place that I start. Um, the second thing that I would say is that... Um, if, if I were, and I've actually said it this way to, to some boards and presidents and definitely to some enrollment folks who get it more, more, <laughs> more instinctively, um, is that um, um, lost my train of thought. It's okay. <laughs> no. Is that they, the, the, if the question is what... And this actually does come up sometime. If the question is, what do you observe about those who are surviving and moving toward thriving or even thriving at this time? What's the difference between those that are and those aren't? Mm -hmm. If I had to pick one factor, what would that factor be? Even if they don't ask that question, I ask it for them so that I can give them this perspective. And my perspective is this, the biggest one single factor, not a silver bullet, but in my opinion, it's an essential piece of a strategic way forward is what I call partnerships. Mm. That it's not just a, a program of some type or a, like I said, that silver bullet or that silver lining or whatever, that one big idea. No, it's, it's everybody kind of in this together. And the places that I think are, are really struggling are the ones where everybody's pointing the finger at somebody else on campus and saying, this is not my problem. It's their problem over there. Yeah. And of course, the place where the fingers get pointed most often is the admissions office. Right. But, it, my, it, but often the admissions office is also pointing at the faculty or the finance, financial office or whatever. And so... Or the marketing department. That's a real common one as well. And yeah. so when you got all, and, and I've been on some campuses where it is horrendous. Yeah. It's egregiously, it's, it's the tension you can cut it. You know, they're pointing their fingers at each other. And and those that are kind of weathering the storm or even thriving through it, you, you go on those campuses and you feel this sense of we're all in this together. Yeah. There's a strong partnership between admissions and marketing, if they're not already combined as an, as an administrative unit. There's a strong partnership between various academic departments and the, and the recruitment and the marketing efforts. It's what I call the triad. It's marketing, 
admissions or recruitment, and, and the academic programs. If that triad, mm. I mean, there's others too. There's IT and there's student life and there's all those other departments. But if that triad, if there's a strong partnership between those three areas, yeah. then you have a good chance of thriving. Well, it's, it's a really great insight. Uh, I've noticed too that uh, a lot of organizations, a lot of universities, they take that partnership word and they're looking outward trying to find folks to link up with to find additional resources or connections to people who might be uh, prospective students. But if those outside groups take one look at your culture and say, wow, it's dysfunctional and distasteful and, you know, it's just it's we wouldn't want to be a part of that, um, then you really are in trouble um, from from both sides of that. Yeah. In fact, when I say the word partnerships, a lot of presidents say, yeah, you're right. And they start going in talking about partnering with. And that's important, too. It's another very strong part of a of a lot of good strategic plans out there. Yeah. And and I'm not sure I'd put it in the same level of essentials mm. in order to thrive as I would the internal partnerships. Absolutely. Absolutely. Roger, you're a real pal, friend to have a chat with us today. Ed, you always have such great perspective. From the first time I met you, your ability to come in and look at a situation and calmly uh, outline your perspective. You've, you just have such great insights. And I do think there are a lot of folks that get up every day and think, how are we going to keep the, the doors open? And uh, appreciate your willingness to share with us today on this. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks. Good to be here. <laughs>